Well, this morning we continue our series, which we began last week, on the minor prophet of Malachi. Malachi was the last prophet sent by God to speak to his people. And after he left, there was a long, long period of silence before the next prophet would come, and that would be John the Baptist. This morning, we look at the second section, or the, or the beginning of the second disputation, uh, found in chapter uh, 1 of Malachi, starting at verse 6, going through 14. Hear now the word of the Lord. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priest, who despise my name. But you say... How have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor? Says the Lord of hosts. And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name, and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted, and its fruit, that is, its food, may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is, and you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence, or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God shall indeed stand forever. Let's pray. So, Father, as we now look at your word, I pray that you would, by your spirit, give us unction and anointing. Help us to understand. Change us and grow us by your grace. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. You know, we were made to worship. You know, there are many things that we can do and many things that we can do to bring added value to life. But in the end, our purpose, the reason we were made was and is to worship God. God has made us in his image, which means we have souls and are responsible for our actions. And we are made to be in relationship with him. And so God made us to worship, not, not just anything or anyone, right? He made us to worship him with that ability, and he also made us to worship him specifically. This is God's chief call upon our life to glorify him, and to enjoy him forever. But a problem arises, doesn't it? Because since Adam and Eve threw this world into rebellion, sin has affected every part of our lives, every part of our hearts. And we don't always worship 
whom or what we're supposed to. And even when we do worship the Lord, we don't always do it with our whole hearts. Indeed, one of the primary reasons why God sent his people into exile is that they were worshiping the wrong person. They were not worshiping him. They were worshiping false gods, idols from foreign nations. And so God sent them into exile after warning them time and time again. But now they've returned from exile. The temple, which was destroyed in 586 B.C., another temple was finished in 516. It's been rebuilt, and they've stopped worshiping foreign gods. That's good, right? They were made to worship just like you and me, and they're not worshiping foreign gods. Everything's hunky-dory, right? Sacrifices are being made. The priests are up and running. Well, not so much. If you didn't look too closely, it might look okay, like a, a tree on the horizon, but when you get close to it, you see that it's rotten, and it's about to fall. And so their worship from afar looked good, but when you got close, it was rotten, and God wasn't having anything to do with it. As we think about the application of this text for our lives, how is our worship? How is our worship? Is it God-honoring? Or is it rotten, like here in Malachi chapter 1? God opens the section with quite the charge against the priests who have been entrusted with the duty of leading God's people in the worship of his name. And it is simply this, that instead of honoring his name, instead of fearing his name, they have despised it. You know, to honor something is to hold it in high esteem, to admire it, to speak highly of it. Something that is honored is considered weighty and an important thing, an important matter. In fact, the Hebrew word uh, means weightiness. God tells the priests in verse 6 that he isn't even getting the honor and respect that human fathers and human masters get. Isn't he, a, uh, isn't he greater than an earthly father? Isn't he greater than an earthly master? And he can't even get the fear and the honor that they deserve. They have despised his name. Now, what do we mean by name? Now, my name is Richard Parker Johnson. Those are the names that my parents gave me. Uh, but name in the Bible means much more than how we usually use it as Americans. When we speak of God's name, we are getting to not just what he's called, but rather who he is and his essence and his character and his being and his reputation. To speak of his name is to speak of God, not just what he is called. When, when, when God says the priests are despising his name, he means they are despising him. They are called to honor his name, but instead they are treating it not weightily, but they are profaning it. And essentially the Hebrew word there means to treat it lightly. Or they are despising it, which means to treat something with contempt, as if it weren't worthy of their time and their energy. But you'll notice, you'll notice through this text, it's, it's amazing. There's a, a contrast that keeps going back and forth about, between how the priests are treating the name of God and the fact that, that God's name is great, whether they are treating it well or not. How they treat the name of God, how they treat God himself, whether they honor him or despise him, has real no bearing upon whether his name is great. His name is grand and glorious. It's no coincidence that God uses a, a very specific title for himself in this text. Um, 
uh, let's see, seven times in nine verses, the Lord of hosts is translated in the ESV, or Yahweh Sabaoth, meaning Yahweh of angel armies. Um, we all, have you ever wondered what that word meant? Sabaoth is his name. Um, that's from uh, what a mighty fortress is our God. That's what it's talking about. It's talking about Lord God of armies. We also see him use other weighty titles, like two other references to his covenantal name, Yahweh. Twice we see that. And then also the word Adonai, or Lord, and my favorite one at the end, Great King. God's name is worthy of praise, and whether or not the priests are giving it has no effect on the greatness of his name. But when we worship the Lord privately in our own devotions, together as families and together in the worship service, are we honoring the Lord or are we despising it? When we worship, we are meant to take the focus off ourselves and place it on God, glorifying Him, speaking highly of Him, lifting up His name. We honor Him, revere Him, fear Him, adore Him, show Him our affection and respect Him. But God's real clear at the priests here. They weren't honoring his name. And now it's not like they, their honor was defective in the sense like it was running at 70% of capacity rather than the needed 95%. No, it's that they were doing the exact opposite. It's not that they were trying to honor God, but they weren't doing well. It's that they were actually despising his name. How were they doing that? Verse 7 tells us, By offering polluted food on my altar... You know, God had set up the sacrificial system with very specific rules of what kinds of animals were to be sacrificed, how they were to be sacrificed, when they were to be sacrificed, where they were to be sacrificed, what you were supposed to do with certain organs, which parts you were supposed to burn, which ones you were supposed to grill, which ones you could eat, which one was dedicated to the Lord, what you had to do to dispose of the body, depending on which kind of the five sacrifices uh, you made. But, but true to all of those different categories is the basic idea that you only brought the best. You only brought the best. You, you didn't take the worst out of the herd and give that to God. You kept that for yourself. Or you endured the loss for yourself. You gave the Lord the best. And the priests had the duty to inspect the animals that the people brought for sacrifice to make sure they were good enough or not. Leviticus twenty-two nineteen instructs the priests here. It says, If it is to be acceptable to you, it shall be a male without blemish. That's really important. Without blemish of the bulls or the sheeps or the goats. Now there are other... Um, specific commands for different kind of specific sacrifices, but across the board, it had to be an animal without blemish. And yet, what was happening? Verses 8 and 13 tell us that the priests were offering up animals that were blind, that were lame, that were sick, and even taken in violence. You know, there's a difference between robbing and stealing. Stealing is like when someone's not home and you go in and take it. Robbing is when you use violence to compel them to give it up. In other words, they were offering up to the Lord what was otherwise useless in the marketplace or doomed to die. You know, a blind sheep can't follow 
uh, a shepherd to the green pastures. A lame one cannot move, would have to be moved here and there and the otherwise. And a sick one you would want to get out of the gene pool just as quickly as you could. And these were the ones that the priests were sacrificing to the Lord. Their sacrifices were substandard. We might say substandard at best. They were so bad that God here says that they were despising his name, profaning his name. The sacrificial system was always meant to point to Christ. Christ is the true sacrifice. The blood of bulls and goats cannot take away anybody's sin. Hebrews tells us that. And they were messing up even the shadow, the thing that was meant to point to the real thing. The shadow is never as good as the real thing. And the sacrificial system was the shadow of the true thing that was to come, and that was Christ's sacrifice. The reason it had to be an animal without blemish is because it pointed to the spotless lamb of God. Aren't we thankful that we are redeemed according to 1 Peter 1.19 with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot? Well, how do we apply this to our lives? We're not sacrificing animals anymore. Praise Jesus. Uh, Jesus, the one who has fulfilled that law and his sacrifice was the one that, that ended them all. But that doesn't mean that we don't have things to learn from this text. Because primarily this text is about worship. The priests who were meant to lead God's people in worship were leading not just ineffectively, not just, you know, they weren't real competent in their jobs. They, they were leading them astray. And so we have things that we can learn about worship in our lives. While we don't sacrifice animals, 50, Psalm 51.17 says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. You back up a chapter in Psalm chapter 50, verse 23. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. Let's, let's take this opportunity as we see how the priests had despised the name of the Lord by not worshiping well. Let's, let's step back and think about how, what's the condition of our worship, right? I mean, we can say that those who don't know Christ, they are called to worship God and they're not. But what about believers, right? I mean, you had to know that there were many true believers within Israel who were bringing animals to God by the, um, uh, to, to be sacrificed by the priests, and, and hopefully they brought the good things. The, things were mixed. And sometimes even as we desire to worship God, we might get led astray. So it's a great opportunity to think through what is the condition of our worship. Well, let's identify four different ways that we often bring blemished worship to God. The first is that we engage in worship flippantly. Flippantly. You know, similar to a word like flippant might be willy-nilly, <laughs> over casually, or just yeah, a sense of meh. How often do we sing our hymns? Well, not during COVID, right? How often do we sing our hymns without ever engaging the words in our hearts. I'm so guilty of that. Are, are you? D do we really think that God is glorified by us flapping our lips and moving our vocal cords without engaging what the words are saying? If we don't have to engage the words, we might as well just be singing some rock and roll song. Sometimes those are more exciting than the hymns out of the hymnal. 
Or, or do we allow our minds to wander during the prayer? Oh, I struggle with that. Or dare I say it, the sermon? If we look at the passages in which God's people are in the presence of God in the Bible, there are a lot of elements that are common to those, but, but one that keeps coming back is reverence. Reverence or awe. An acknowledgement of the holiness of God and the grandeur due his name. And my friends, I am guilty of coming into corporate worship or my private worship without that sense of awe and reverence for the holiness of God. Imagine one day if you get an official call from Governor Ivey's office saying that she wants to meet with you in a few days. I imagine you would prepare for that meeting, right? You might think through what you're going to wear, think through what you're going to say. Are you going to stick out your hand? Are you going to wait for her to come? Are you going to wear a mask or not? Can you hug her? How are you going to act in this meeting? I imagine you would smile and think through your state of mind. Well, in verse 8, God tells the priest, rather sarcastically too, I love the rhetorical device here. Uh, he said, yeah, you know, take those blemish sacrifice you're giving me and present them to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor? The answer is no. And, and yet we often come to our governor, to our bosses, to those in authority over us with far more reverence and awe than we do when we come into the presence of Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of angel armies. I'm guilty of that. Are you? Let's, let's keep meddling a little bit. How, how else might we apply this text? How about begrudgingly? How about begrudgingly? Oftentimes we enter into worship begrudgingly as if someone has dragged us there. Or really, I just don't want to get a call from someone because I'm not there and I don't really want to deal with that. Something we have to do or something we have to suffer through in order to get to the Sunday dinner table. Do I really have to again go today and worship the God who sacrifices only Son so that I don't have to spend an infinity amount of time in hell? Do I really have to do that? I'm guilty of that. Are you? There's another way this applies, and we see it with the priests in our text, and that's doing things our way instead of God's way. The priests knew what the law of God said really clearly. This, this, the Levitical laws might be obscure to you and me, but they would not have been obscure to priests. They would have trained to the point of being, to, being time to take as a priest to know what to do. Instead, though, they know what they're supposed to do, but they're doing it their own way. You know, some things are immaterial in worship, whether you have pews or chairs, whether you use hymnals or a screen, handouts or something prepared. Um, some things are immaterial, like what you wear, jeans or suit. Uh, I used to preach in, in Chacos at my last church until my boss told me I had to wear closed-toed shoes. I have a picture of myself doing First Communion uh, in jeans. It's a, it's a different context. Th those things are immaterial. Some things are preference. But there are a lot of things that aren't. And God says we are to worship him the way that he desires us to. And that includes, by the way, the Lord's Day. One day in seven, set aside for the Lord. The last application I want to make, the last meddling application I want to make before we, we move on, 
is, uh, is how we profane the name of the Lord and despise it and treat it lightly. And that's, not, it's, that's by not engaging in worship at all. Hebrews 10, 24-25 says, and Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. I'm not addressing y'all who, are, who because of health reasons uh, or needs within the family who are still engaging online. That's not what I'm talking about. In fact, I'm thankful that you're engaging online. I'm talking about those seasons in our lives where we just don't make it a priority and we just don't engage in worship at all. Well, let's back up. Let's back up to the year 460 B.C. when these priests are serving, um, when Nehemiah would soon be coming, just a couple years later, we think. What did God think about these blemished sacrifices? Look with me at verse 10. Oh, oh, that they were one among you who had shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. Did you hear what God just said? He's wishing rhetorically, I mean, he could close it if he wanted to. Uh, He's wishing rhetorically that there would be someone who would just put out the fire of the altar so it might not be rekindled and shut the door to the court's of the temple complex so that no one could come in and make another sacrifice. How do you think God viewed these blemished sacrifices? He didn't want them. In fact, he says something really scary. He says, I have no pleasure in you. Wow. Wow. I guess God does care about how he's worshipped. You know, I, I for one, as we back up, I, I want to learn to worship God better. I really do. I'm so selfish. I'm so prideful. I'm self so centered. So self centered. I'm so focused more on my own leisure than worshiping God, my own free time. What about you? You know, even though I spend a lot of time as my vocation preparing for Sunday mornings in prayer and reading and writing my sermon, sometimes desperately praying, Lord, Sunday's coming quick. I got to have something to say. You know, I, I still find it very hard to engage. From the pulpit at times. This is just me being vulnerable with you. The struggle that is felt in the pew to remain engaged in worship is also shared in the pulpit and probably some spiritual warfare there too, right? You know, sometimes I find myself in the Apostles' Creed having read through it because I don't recite it anymore because I mess up every time I don't read it. Uh, realizing, hey, what did I just say? Or the Lord's Prayer, right? We're going through those ruts and rhythms in the pastoral prayer. It's, you know, true worship is work. And I want to get better at it. Do you you want to get better at it? We're going to be doing it forever. This is what heaven's going to be like. We're not going to be in a cloud playing a harp. There's going to be a lot of worship of God, though. And finally, we won't have to deal with our sinful hearts, which, you know, wander and our minds begin to think about what's next on the agenda. You know, the thing is that worship is a matter of the heart. The four areas we looked at, and there are a bajillion more, the four areas we looked at of how we worship improperly, the answer to these things is not just to try harder. The answer is not to look at ourselves or, or navel gaze. You look down and see your belly, you can't see anything else, as, as Luther liked to put it. Rather, it's to look to God. 
Only God can transform our hearts. It takes effort on our part, yes, but only as the Holy Spirit enables us. True worship comes from hearts that are deeply in love with the Lord Jesus. True worship comes from those who have hearts that have been transformed and love the Lord. Do you think these priests truly love the Lord? Maybe there were some good guys that have been led astray. Some of them were rotten, didn't know the Lord. But maybe there are some good guys who are just gotten led astray by those who are older. And they needed to love the Lord more. What about you? Don't you desire to love the Lord more? And that which we love, we worship. Don't you want to again be blown away by the sacrificial death of Christ on the cross? Overjoyed at the empty tomb, ecstatic about the imminence of his return? Thrilled about the indwelling of the Spirit? If we want to worship better, then we look to God and not to ourselves. It's a heart issue of whom or what we value. Think about the things or the people that are valuable to you, that things or those things which are significant. Your family, your friends, perhaps hobbies, these are the things which we spend our time and energy and our thoughts on. The more important these things are to us, the more sway they will have over our lives. How much sway does God have over our lives? Many have called Matthew chapter 6, verse 21, the treasure principle. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, unfortunately, we have a tragic example from our text. In the response of the priests to God's charges, we see this in verse 13. But you say, what a weariness this, this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You know, when I initially read this in preparation this week, I immediately thought of a child or a teenager rolling his or her eyes at their parents when they are corrected. Rolling their eyes with that verbal groan, Oh, mother, father. Demonstrating that he or she doesn't have any respect for the authority or concern or correction or charges made against them. What would happen if you snorted at your parents or at your boss when they corrected you? How do you think that would go? And yet, right here, they are snorting at Lord God Almighty the Lord of hosts. The priests weren't accidentally doing what was wrong. Indeed, the people of Israel weren't accidentally bringing diseased animals either. This was willful disobedience. Their worship was rotten because their hearts were rotten. Isn't it the good news of Jesus that God loves people whose hearts are rotten, yours and mine, and he takes me and he makes them new? It's not a coincidence that we read of the new birth and regeneration as God giving us a new heart and a new spirit he puts within us. And then he enables us to worship him, to prime the pump for all of eternity. Don't you want to worship God better? I know I do. The question is what will we do about it? When we see this disconnect between the heart of worship we're meant to have and the actual practice in our lives. Verse 9, and now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. I love it. There's a, a great word play in the Hebrew here. The word entreat, which means to come before and ask for something, especially an inferior to a superior, is from the same root word that refers to the sick animal, sick 
Same root word. We make ourselves sick with grief. We humble ourselves before the Lord, telling Him, Lord, I'm sorry. I have not worshipped well. I need you to help me to worship your name. I desire, I beg, I entreat, I ask that you would help me to worship your name better. Well, we we mentioned earlier that there's this contrast between the greatness of God's name. It can't be changed. And how the priests treated it. You know, God didn't create us because he needed worship. There's nothing that was needful in God. There's nothing he lacked. It's not like, hey, I really need somebody to worship me. I'm going to make human beings. No, that's not how it worked. His name is glorified. His, His name is high and lifted up. It is honored And really, how we treat his name has no bearing on his name. It's not like he's at 80% if certain other people are are, are singing to him, and then 90% the next week because more people are singing to him. Rather, it's, it's, it's for our benefit, right, that we worship our God, that we do what we were made to do. What's even more good news is that God has a plan, (laughs) And it, his name will be glorified, and it will be honored for all of eternity. We see this especially in two verses in our text. It appears elsewhere, but especially two verses. Verse 11, For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name, and a pure offering for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. And then verse 14, my favorite verse of this passage For I am a great king, says the Lord of angel armies, the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. All over this earth, from the horizon where the sun rises to the horizon where the sun sets, that's everywhere, by the way, God's name will be glorified. It will be glorified. We see this happen, right? It's Christ came and inaugurated the kingdom As he came proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, repent, for the kingdom is at hand. We see this this kingdom go forth as the great king is sacrificed on the cross for your sin and for my sin. Not the blemished mess that the, the priests were offering in the past, but as the high priest himself served as the perfect spotless lamb of God, the only sacrifice that can take away your sin and mine as he uh, received the wrath of his father upon the cross, as the fire was poured out upon him. We see it in the pouring out of the Spirit at, at Pentecost and the gospel going forth beyond the border of Israel to the coastlands in the language of Isaiah, to the Gentiles, to the nations in the words of Malachi. And now there are more believers than there ever have been in all of history. My friends, it's not over. For remember, you and I were created to worship, and this is what we will do if you are in Christ Jesus. If you have trusted the Lord as your Lord and Savior, if you have confessed your sins, that you worship something other than Almighty God, then your future and my future is in heaven around the throne of God, worshiping his name forever. And one day, oh, and may it come soon, one day, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. 
and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so we pray, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen. And now receive the Lord's benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. And all God's people said, Amen.